Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. So to begin our much-touted episode today, Cass, I mean, we've only been saying that we're going to do this episode for the last two years. (laughs) (laughs) I thought we could start with some wonderful quotes on or by our subject at hand, who was not only a pillar of American fashion during the latter half of the 20th century, she was also its architect, its foreman, its day laborer, its real estate agent. <laughs> you know, I think I think you get where I'm going with this because she kind of did all of the jobs. Oh, that she did. And not one to sit on her laurels. She once remarked, you must always be alert and see the things right in front of you that are not being done and should be done. And I love that quote. It's something that I very much took to heart the very first time I read it. And I think you and I kind of both identify with that sentiment. And on the subject of her work ethic, Harold Coda, who was the curator at the Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art for many, many years, at the time said, quote, she was more ambitious and inspired at her dreams than the very industry she was trying to advance. In other words, she was a true visionary. After more than 50 years in the business, she was still referred to as, quote, the most influential woman in fashion. And of her, designer Ralph Lauren once commented, if Eleanor didn't exist, they would have to invent her. We are, of course, speaking about the doyen of American fashion, Eleanor Lambert. Yes, and Lambert is actually the subject of an exhibition which opened recently at the museum at FIT, and each March, the graduate students of the Fashion and Textile Studies program are given the chance to mount their very own professional museum exhibition. And Cass, you and I both got the chance to participate this um, when we were in grad school, right? What was the theme of your exhibition? Right. So I actually co-curated the exhibition with the fabulous Tracy Jenkins, and it was Youthquake, the 1960s Fashion Revolution, which explored the dramatic impact of youth culture on fashion during the 1960s. So that was a very fun experience. Yes. And I love that show. It was like one of my favorites. Oh, thank actually, you. I must say. And what was your show? Well, we did a show um, on Muriel King, who was one of the very first American fashion designers to become a household name uh, during the 1930s. And a really fun thing about Muriel is that she did not know how to cut, drape, or sew at all. (laughs) So she really relied on her like, you know, custom couture staff to create um, the clothes, which she sketched. So she was really an artist first and foremost. So all of her sketches get translated into the clothing by her wonderful, wonderful staff. And at FIT, we have both her sketch archive and a lot of her clothes in the museum collection. So it was like a a pairing of both. Yeah, and one of those really pioneering American fashion designers at a time when French fashion still reigned supreme. And I have to say, her sketches are incredible. 
yeah, they're they're really beautiful and super detailed because that's how she was communicating with her staff. So they weren't like fast and loose. They were hyper detailed. Like her ladies sometimes have red fingernails and they might be smoking a cigarette. <laughs> So these are but a few of the tantalizing topics that have been tackled over the years by the MA students in this particular program. Um, uh, you know, to mention but a few of the other topics that I have been covered, prior classes have done the history of designer perfumes, uh, the millinery designs of Lily Dashay, the style icon Lauren Bacall, as well as the shoes of Christian Louboutin. And, and, and that's just a few of them. There are many, many more. And now Eleanor Lambert now joins their cadre. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Carol, welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on your exhibition. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be given this opportunity. Um, we could not have done it without our wonderful classmates and Professor Serona Marshall, museum at FIT. Um, unfortunately, today I don't have my co-curator with me, Faith Cooper, who worked so hard on this exhibition, but she's not feeling well. So feel better, Faith. Yes, feel better. And I think you all can hear I myself am getting over a cold, so there's something going around. Um, but Faith, you are missed, so shout out. <laughs> <laughs> we are very pleased that you guys um, selected this topic because we have nothing if not a wealth of information on Eleanor Lambert. Anybody who listens to the show has heard us say for years now that we're going to do an episode. So here it is. We're, we are here. And, you know, Eleanor has come up on the show um, time and time again because she really was this power player in the history of American fashion. I mean, the sheer breadth of her endeavors almost seems superhuman when you lay them out all out on page. So I guess what I'm saying is we should start at the very beginning. What can you tell us about Lambert's very early years? Well, Eleanor Lambert was born in 1903 in Crawfordsville, Indiana, and was the youngest child of five. Um, her father was an advanced man for Ringling Brothers uh, Circus, mm -hmm. and her mother was a homemaker. Um, so she was mainly raised by her mother. Um, she wanted to become a sculptor, so she went to art school in Indiana at the uh, John Heron School of Art to study. And while she was there, she... Um, began writing, doing a little fashion writing, mm -hmm. um, mainly for a paper in Indiana, and then later for a publication in Fort Wayne. So she would commute between Fort Wayne and Indianapolis, um, writing her columns. And then she went to the Art Institute of Chicago, where she continued to study sculpture. And it was there when she met her first husband, Willis Connor, um, and they moved to New York in 1925. One of the things she always said about New York, one of the things that attracted her to going there was that she said, quote, this is a city where every idea gets a hearing. Any idea you want to do, you can find someone to listen to you. And if no one agrees with you, you better get a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was certainly chock full of ideas because she really was this initiator, you know, a fountainhead from the even the very earliest years of her career in New York. And she was involved with some very prestigious organizations. What can you tell us about the beginning of her career in New York? Well, she started writing um, articles, fashion articles as well, um, still for a uh, publicity company. And she started to go down 57th Street and acquire artists um, to be their publicists. She would charge them $10. She went all the way down 57th Street. And she wound up picking up such people as George Bellows, Jackson Pollock, um, Isamu Noguchi, who also did a bust of her 
support of her head mm-hmm. as a payment. Nice. Um, so she started out doing that. Um, she also hung out with a lot of the, you know, artists and writers of New York City, uh, specifically Dorothy Parker at the Algonquin Hotel, which was a interesting story. She uh, she and Dorothy Parker one night after a fun night out, they wound up going downtown to the Bowery and getting tattooed. <laughs> and Dorothy and <laughs> what <laughs> tattoos did they get? I don't know what Dorothy Parker got, but Eleanor Lambert got a small blue star tattoo on her ankle, and we use it as a little Easter egg in our exhibition. Oh, that's so sweet. It's sort of at the bottom of every text label. Nice. So it's a little nod to Eleanor and her wild side. So what can you tell us about her working relationship with some of these really well-known contemporary artists at that time that, that she started working with in terms of publicity? Yeah, well, she would contact uh, galleries to organize shows for them. Um, She, like I said, represented George Bellows. She got him to follow the Ringling Brothers Circus around to do paintings. Um, So she was really had her hands in the art world initially. She was also the press director for the Whitney when it first came around. Which is pretty amazing. Exactly, and she also helped found the uh, found the Museum of Modern Art. Yeah. And 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 you know what? If you if your career stopped there, that would still be fairly incredible. Yeah. But it just keeps going. It keeps going. Well, now the depression hit and um it, Annette Simpson, um, who's a little known designer, worked for her she approached her to do her publicity briefly. Fashion designer, we should point out. Fashion designer. Yes. Exactly. And so that was her first client that we know of. Um it was short lived though. Um but then she went on to work with Valentina. She worked with Molly Parnas as well, who also convinced her to remain in the fashion publicity world. And Molly Parnas is a a designer who wound up dressing up to later on the six different first ladies. Mm -hmm. So Eleanor Lambert had a large hand in that. Yeah. And of course, we've already done an episode on the illustrious Valentina. So if you want to go back and learn a little bit more about her, you can. Um, She was a notorious pathological liar. (laughs) So you and I were talking offline a little bit before we started recording. And you were saying that Eleanor was always trying to get Valentina to give her a biography? Yes. Right? She could not get her to give her a straight biography because <laughs> Valentina was sort of creating her own legend yeah. at the time. And she told um, she told Lambert that, you know, why write about Valentina? Just let them dream about Valentina, Yeah, which is a classic Valentina answer. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. So <laughs> go back to that prior episode to learn more about her. She's pretty amazing. Yeah. But we do have one of her garments in our show. And I believe I, was, I reviewed your um, podcast on Valentina, and you mentioned that she had a short list ready-to-wear collection. I believe one of the garments we have in our exhibition is one of those garments. Oh, excellent. Yeah, as well as some of the ads that she was representing the companies, Avon Cosmetics, um, Selenese Rayon, mm-hmm. etc. So um, Lambert starts out at working as a publicist with contemporary artists at the time, kind of switches over and or veers into the realm of fashion at the behest of specific de- designers who are like, hey, we need PR. And she saw this this moment and this opportunity. What she does next is she kind of turns her attention to the totality of the American fashion scene. And she had so many initiatives running on the behalf of American fashion during the late 1930s and the 1940s. She was an incredibly busy lady. What can you tell us about this very specific period of time? Well, she started out as um, one of the founding members of the fashion group, which mm-hmm. was initially a ladies' group. Um, that were they were editors, they were designers, they were involved in fashion. Um, 
she stayed with them for a little bit, but didn't like the concept of them just being a ladies group. She thought, you know, there's too many ladies huddled in one room together. We need to have the men involved if we want to, this to become an international thing. So she wound up being um, hired by the New York Dress Institute, which was founded in 1940. Lambert was hired a year later to represent them in the media. So she took over their previous um, advertising company that had, this was the same company that came up with the term halitosis. <laughs> so their angle was all about shaming women. So uh, yes. their first... You can do better by our product. Exactly. That old line. So they wound up um, having this, initially this ad campaign called, uh, like, don't be a one-dress Beulah. And mm-hmm. there was this image of this woman walking into a room with her little black dress on and everybody looking at her and gasping like, she only has one dress for all occasions. This is ridiculous. And she also, they also put out an ad um, with Martha Washington at the Battle of Fort Lee. I need to double check that. Yeah. But it was Martha Washington basically dressed to the nines, inspiring the troops to, to get through the war. Um, and so the manufacturers uh, of these dresses didn't like the fact that their customers were being shamed. Mm-hmm. They didn't think that that was you know, the way to go. So they hired Eleanor Lambert, and she changed the entire vibe of their advertising campaign. Yeah, and and just to be a little more explicit, New York Dress Institute was a professional organization. It was. So if you were um, a ready-to-wear manufacturer or um, even a designer, you could belong to this organization. And then the organization as a whole was kind of promoting American fashion. It was, and it was a, it was kind of a unique time because, you know, the threat of the Second World War was was on France and Europe. Um, and New York, the dress in- industry, was kind of in a tizzy about this because that's where they were getting all of their designs. And anticipation of Paris shutting down, the um, it was actually Mayor LaGuardia and the fashion group and a lot of other folks from, from Washington to New York City, the whole garment industry got together, including the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those rare occurrences where the union labor and the manufacturers worked together. Right. And the union decided that they weren't going to strike anymore. They weren't going to charge any more than um, they needed to. And they were going to make these labels called New York Creations from the New York Dress Institute. So it was also really trying to put New York City on the map as a design center by highlighting New York City. Absolutely. And to that same end, um, a little bit later, maybe a couple years later, Eleanor does something else. She partners with a cosmetics company, Cody. What can you tell us about that relationship? Well, this was interesting because this was right when the United States entered the Second World War. Uh, The Limitation Order 85 um, was in effect where they had restrictions on fabric. So these New York designers had to work with what they had. So there was an enormous amount of creativity and resourcefulness involved in this. So she and Grover Wayland, I believe who was the president of Cody Cosmetics at the time, decided to create an awards show highlighting American designers. Mm -hmm. So um, they held it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1942. And they had a, first off, what they would call the Winnie, the the, the star. It's like the, the Oscar. Exactly. Basically. It was like the Oscar. <laughs> and Norman Orell that won that year. Uh, also, Valentina won a citation for a design for an innovative skirt she had made that made it look like it had more volume than it did. And Claire McCardle also won a uh, citation for her creation of the popover dress, which was a denim number with a little oven mitt that was attached to it. And in our exhibition, we'd have a version of her popover dress from later years, um, but we also reference the original denim one that was was a part of that Cody Awards, and that went on until, I think, the mid-'80s. Yeah, yeah. And so all of these initiatives kind of spin out of this very specific time period when 
America was cut off from Paris because of the war, and they were really kind of grounding themselves as an industry and defining themselves as uniquely American versus all the systematic um, copying of, of French designs that had been happening prior. We talk about this again and again and again on the show, but in case you haven't heard any of those episodes, it's important to say here, I think. So we're going to take a very brief break for a word from our sponsor, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about Press Week. So with Lambert, um, press coverage was really the name of the game for her. She was at at her core a publicist. Um, And it could really be argued that her founding of Press Week in 1943 was one of her longest lasting legacies. Hoping you can tell us a little bit more about Press Week and also... It's modern-day incarnation because almost all of our listeners are going to be familiar with this. Exactly. Um, well, she started, like you said, in 1943, and she would contact editors uh, from across the country. Some weren't necessarily fashion editors at the time because that wasn't necessarily a thing. Mm-hmm. But she paid for their expenses to come to New York City and come to these loft spaces and preview um, the designers' uh, collections two times a year in the fall and in the spring. So then the, these editors would then go home and they would spread the word about these designers um, that she was cultivating in New York City. So fast forward to today. Yes. We still have an incarnation of Press Week. We do. Which is? Fashion Week. Fashion Week, yeah. So this this early Press Week in 1943, um, it's not the exact same organization, but she really planted that seed and created Fashion Week, what we call Fashion Week now, in the 1940s. She did. It was uh, Fern Malice, I believe, in 1990, went to a a fashion show that was held in an old loft, and part of the ceiling fell down on her (laughs) and some of the audience, so she decided that they might want to move the uh, fashion shows into tents, and that was where the idea of having the tents at Bryant Park came from. So all of these things are going on, but at the same time, Lambert is also, um, in addition to working as a publicist, writing a nationally syndicated newspaper column, right? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. She started writing um, She, uh, which was a syndicated, it was syndicated in about 60 different countries. And she wrote it up until her death. It was one of those things she never gave up on. She wrote an article specifically um, about an FIT graduate called John Hagens, who we cover in our show. And uh, it's very cute. Um, but she would write about designers. She would write about fashion forecasts. Um, and at a certain point later on in the 80s, I think it switched to just Eleanor Lambert mm-hmm. as opposed to she. But your special collections, I believe, has every article that she's written. Pretty much. <laughs> we have a lot of her columns, which yeah. is pretty amazing. We actually have um, her papers there, which in total is about 60 linear feet of materials. And it is this... It's the entire history of American fashion right there in that one collection. It is. It's pretty amazing. It's actually one of our most used collections these days as well. Um, One of the other significant portions of that archive are actually all the records um, pertaining to the founding of the CFDA, which was yet another organization that she helped found. What can you tell us about the CFDA? Because it kind of like picked up where the Cody Awards left off. It did. Well, initially, when she created the CFDA in 1962, after she finished with the New York City, the New York Couture Group, which had been a part of the New York Dress Institute, mm-hmm. um, and the New York Couture Group did promote department stores and designers, but the CFDA was purely designers. Um, 
And so it became a not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. By doing that, it was able to apply to become a member of the National Council of the Arts. Mm-hmm. So the National Endowment for the Arts had been established in the late 30s, and Senator Claiborne Pell of New York uh, convinced Eleanor to come down to Washington to testify that fashion was an American art form. Right. So um, we have her transcript in our show um, of her testimony, and it's wonderful. She quotes Harriet Beecher Stowe from an 1846 column called Chimney Corner (laughs) that she had written, and she wrote about American fashion and how American women shouldn't adopt alien fashions, as she she put it. So this idea of Americans having their own identity through fashion was not a new one. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and that's when it sort of took off. Yeah, so the the main thrust of her career had been fashion, but she never entirely stepped outside of the art world. What was her relationship to the art world, both personally and professionally? So the art world didn't just consist of artists. She was mm-hmm. also friends with actors, um, singers, writers. Um, she was friends with Judy Garland, Truman Capote, Cecil Beaton, um, even Robert Maplethorpe, and uh this also spurred the best dress list. This was another way that she was able to draw attention to the artists and performers that she was friends with, this whole creative society of New York City and America, really. So one of the things we cover in our show is the black and white ball, mm-hmm. which really— Truman Capote. Exactly, which really highlights, you know, everybody she knew. Um, Truman Capote wanted this to be the party of the year, and he wanted it to be all about himself. And Eleanor Lambert was like, you can't make this all about you. <laughs> So she wound up convincing him to have the guest of honor be um, Catherine Graham from the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And she invited all of the creme de la creme of New York City to come, um, including Marietta Tree, whose headpiece we have um, on display from that black and white ball. And that was gifted by her daughter, Penelope Tree, Mm -hmm. who's also an egg Famous model. Exactly. Um, We also highlight Salvador Dali in the exhibition. Um, She was working with the International Silk Congress in the late 40s. And as Silk had been out of production during the Second World War, there was a massive campaign to put it back into dressing again and to introduce a whole generation that hadn't worn it. Mm -hmm. Um, So she got the International Silk Congress to commission Salvador Dali to make a poster um, about the promotion of silk. And he did this beautiful painting of butterflies and cocoons, and it wound up on the cover of American Fabrics. Mm-hmm. And he also then, that, that motif um, translated into a series of ties that he was designing. And the museum has um, templates of these designs uh, that he had created. So we also have one of those on display as well. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. Well, you said this phrase earlier, which pulls me into the next thing I want to talk about just perfectly. You said that Truman Capote wanted his very famous black and white ball to be the party of the year. Well, in actuality, one museum in particular that Lambert worked with was the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, And it's of special note to all of us as fashion historians because um, Eleanor was yet again at the founding of the Costume Institute at the Met. And one of the initiatives that she did there was its annual gala or fundraiser, which at the time was called Party of the Year, But now, of course, we know it as the Met Gala. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of a fashion wing started with a collection from a very wealthy woman called Irene Lewinson. Um, She collected antique costumes, national costumes, um, and Condé Nast was also interested in the idea. So Lambert had a lunch with the Met's director and told him about this collection and pitched the idea for a fashion wing. Uh, She believed the Met could be a place of research and inspiration for designers. However, the director believed the fashion industry needed to coordinate a fundraiser to, quote, prove their interest. 
This presented a token fund, so they discussed raising $250,000 as a permanent endowment to start Mm -hmm. this department, and they wound up raising up to $350,000. However, after the first year, the Met came back to Lambert and asked for an additional $30,000 because the money they raised went to the main fund of the museum. So they decided to organize another fundraiser, which is now called the Party of the Year, Mm -hmm. or the Costume Institute Gala. And that started in the 1940s, and they raised about $100,000 a year. Um, and now with Anna Wintour, um, I believe they raise about $200 million alone for the Costume Institute itself. Yeah, I think last year the price of a ticket was $30,000. Yes. One ticket. <laughs> Not a table, friends. That's one ticket. Yes. So the price has gone up a tag. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and, and this was actually something that, um, that she worked tirelessly on throughout her career, charitable causes. There were several others. Would you care to detail a few more of these um, philanthropic endeavors that she undertook? Yes. Um, She wound up coordinating the fashion shows for the March of Dimes Mm -hmm. with a woman called Elaine Whitelaw. And they held it at the Waldorf Astoria from 1945 until 1960. So they would have celebrities like Marilyn Monroe, Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland um, come and they would do these fashion shows and they would raise a ton of money for this. One of the other initiatives for the CFDA, as it was a not-for-profit, was to do fundraising. So while they started out as one organization, um, by the mid-'70s, they spread split into two and created the CFDA Foundation, where they do a lot of fundraising for AIDS, HIV research, mm-hmm. professional development. Um, so she had her hands in a lot of pots at that time. Yeah, absolutely. It could be argued that the Grand Divertissement of Versailles may have been one of her greatest coups that she pulled off. This was also a philanthropic event. Um, We've already done an episode on it, but would you give us a very brief overview of this legendary charity event organized by Lambert? Yes. Well, in 1973, she helped organize it with a curator called Gerald Vanderkamp, um, and it was done in order to help restore the Palace of Versailles, which by the 70s was starting to fall apart. Um, So Lambert suggested doing a fashion show with French designers and American designers, and it would be a sort of international battle of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, so she included uh, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass, Stephen Burroughs, Halston, and Anne Klein. And then the French had Marc Bohan, um, Givenchy, Saint Laurent, Ungaro, and Pierre Cardin. At the end of the day, the French side had spent about an hour and a half in this elaborate production. But then the Americans came on, and they just came out. It was over in 30 minutes. Liza Minnelli performed um, a song. It was a hit. Apparently, the guests were standing on their seats, tossing their programs up in the air. And it was apparently, hands down, they said the Americans won the Battle of Versailles. <laughs> yes. And um, you can tune into our Battle of Versailles episode to learn more. We spoke to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Robin Gavon about it. And she's actually written in a terrific book on the subject as well. So if you would rather read about it than listen about it, you can do that. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and 
think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. So you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, Dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. At this point, we've really kind of only covered the first 40 years or so of Lambert's career. I mean, there are already so many accomplishments at this point, but her career was far from over. Um, she actively worked into her 90s, right, until she was 99, I think, or 98. What are some of the aspects of these later decades of her career that you might like to make note of? Well, she continued working with the CFDA. Um, and, and just we should clarify here, when we say CFDA, because I don't think we, we said, mm-hmm. it's the Council of Fashion Designers of America. It's yes. the Council <laughs> of Fashion Designers of America, exactly. <laughs> so she continued working with them, and she also continued working um, with her individual clients, and she ran her syndicated column up until, I think, the age of 99. Yeah, which is incredible. Yeah, and that was around 2000 or 2002, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she remained busy, but she, after the Versailles, she sort of slightly took a back seat as most of her organizations were up and running. Um, but she continued working nonstop every day. <laughs> is there anything... That in the exhibition that, that you haven't yet highlighted that you would like to chat about a little? Do you have a favorite object? One of my favorite segments is this dialogue between her and Jackie Kennedy mm-hmm. um, when Kennedy was still a senator's wife in 1960 and her husband was campaigning. He was supported by the International Ladies Garment Workers Union and that actually helped him win the New York State as he was running for president. So David Dubinsky, who was the head of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, contacted Jack Kennedy, telling him that his wife needed to be dressed American in every way for this inauguration. So Julius Hoffman, who was a label maker for the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, told Jack that, listen, you need to get in contact with Eleanor Lambert. Um, She is a doyen of fashion, and she will 
point you in the right direction. So that's when they chose Oleg Cassini. And so we have a letter from Jackie Kennedy's office, A, refuting the article that was published in Women's Wear Daily, where she says, you know, I don't know these designers, and I and I don't know who Madame Gray is, and I don't know why everyone is so obsessed with what I'm wearing. <laughs> <laughs> so Because fashion is political. You can't be more explicit about that in this particular instance. And this was a perfect example of it. So Oleg Cassini knew, he was a costume designer originally, so he also knew how to copy what Jackie Kennedy liked, who was mm-hmm. Givenchy. But he also knew that he wanted to give her a very muted palette, so it, you'd really just highlight Jackie Kennedy's beautiful face. Um, and so she went with him, and we have a letter from Eleanor to Jackie congratulating her on choosing Oleg Cassini. And um, Halston was also, who was still working for Ber- Bergdorf Goodman at the time, was also hired to um, design her hat, the famous pillbox the, the hat. hat. Yeah. So soon after, um, Life magazine published this article about how now every woman in America wanted to be Jackie Kennedy. And Eleanor Lambert said, now there's just millions of small, medium, and large Jackie Kennedys all across America. <laughs> um, speaking of some intriguing correspondence that's in the collection, we also have um, the back and forth between Charles James and Eleanor Lambert, which are pretty um, wonderful. Charles James, of course, we've already done an episode on him as well, notoriously difficult to work with, and got to be in his bonnet and returned his Cody Awards one year because he was mad at Eleanor. And we have some really biting, stinging telegrams and letters back and forth between the two over this whole incident as well. So I know Faith, uh, my curatorial partner, wound up going through a lot of these, and it was a real debate whether or not to include them in the exhibition. At the end of the day, we decided to not do that, but we did. Um, we do have one promotional photograph that she still had in her collection of Charles James, a Charles James coat. But that was it, <laughs> aside from the letters. Carol, thank you so much. Uh, before we wrap up for the day, is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, well, we also have some events that coincide with the exhibition. Um, one is a conversation with Amy Fine Collins and Simon Dunan that is uh, happening tonight, and that's based on her book that just came out, The International Best Dress List. Another panel discussion we have is on fashion and diversity, and that's at the end of the month. And on March 26th, we'll be showing the documentary Eleanor, Godmother of American Fashion, which was directed by her grandson, Moses Berkson. After the film, there will be a panel discussion with Moses Berkson um, and her former assistants, John LaForce and John Tiffany. Um, We also want to thank Bettina Zika, who was the author of Ultimate Style, the best of the best dress list. She was very helpful in our research. Uh, These events are free. They're open to the public. um, And you can find more information out on FIT's website. And the museum has its whole own page on that site. So you can find out more information there. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations again. Thank you. Carol, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about the legendary Eleanor Lambert. I mean, April, she lived to be 100 years old, and it seems like she did not waste one second of it. No, she didn't. (laughs) No, she did not. And the sheer volume of her accomplishments is rather astounding and should be quite inspiring to many of us right now. And perhaps uh, can be attributed to her rather perturbing penchant for not taking no as an answer. Um, In her obituary in the New York Times, a really close friend of hers who loved her dearly, John Loring, he said, um, he said, her motto was, don't look back. 
There were no rehashes or postmortems. She didn't care a hoot about what was over, triumphs as well as defeats, and she wouldn't take no for an answer. She didn't hear it. Throw her out through the front door, and she'd fly back through the transom. <laughs> I mean, I love her. She sounds like a hoot, and I'm, I'm a little sad that I never got to meet this woman. Well, someone who did meet her is John Tiffany, who worked as her assistant for a period. And in 2011, he published a book on his former boss, Eleanor Lambert, still here. I believe it's technically out of print, but you can still definitely find used copies on Amazon or other book dealers. And dress listeners, we just want to mention that, of course, the museum at FIT, like so many museums across New York City and the world, actually, is currently closed. So you cannot see this exhibition in person as of now. However, the museum at FIT does have an incredible online website um, and you can check out pieces of that exhibition um, online there. So definitely head on over to uh, fitnyc.edu forward slash museum um, to check out this and the other exhibitions currently on view. I think that does it for us this week, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of American fashion in your closet next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our mini-sode where we keep you up to date on the latest happenings in the world of fashion history and or answer your listener questions. If you'd like to submit a question for a future fashion history mystery, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com or DM us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. As always, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram and Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes this show possible each week. We will talk to you Thursday. Just the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.